Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Chris Dorides and Marissa DiNatale. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. How was the week? Busy. 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 Yeah, very busy. Busier than normal or just busy, busy? Uh, usual busy. Usual busy. You too, Marissa? Yeah. Uh, January's tough. There's a lot to do in January, so. Yeah. I've been traveling. I've been in South Florida. I had a board meeting, and then I had uh, uh, presented to the International Council of Shopping Centers and a couple other stops along the way. Uh, I, one thing, you know, I hadn't been, I've never been, believe it or not, in all my years, I've never been on Brickell Avenue in Miami. Have you guys ever been in Brickell Avenue on Miami, in Miami? No. It's a no, happening place, man. It's a happening place. There's towers uh, going up everywhere. It's just amazing. It's just an amazing place. Um, so is that the Wall Street of Miami? Is that the- I guess so. It's kind of the central, near the Central Business District, yeah, and um, just a lot of activity. Um, it's really you know, interesting to see. Um, uh, but we've got an action-packed uh, podcast. We've got Samim Gamami. He's a SEC Securities and Exchange Commission official. And we're going to talk about, you know, uh, this is a tough topic, but a really important one, liquidity in the treasury security market. You know, we've been talking about all the things that could do us in, you know, the economy's performing well, you know, what could go wrong? And we talk about, you know, stress in the financial system, particularly in the non-bank part of the system and uh, the treasury market's kind of at the top of the list of concerns because there's you know issues, or, believe it or not, it's a huge market, but there's issues around liquidity that's gotten on everyone's radar screen. And Samim is kind of leading the way in terms of reforms there. So we're going to talk to him about that. But before we do, we've got uh, a lot of economic data this past week. Uh, the headline w- was GDP, but you know a bunch of other stuff. And I'll have to say, and I'm kind of leading the conversation. Uh, it was unbelievably good economic <laughs> news. I mean, on every level, you got to really stretch. And I know Chris will stretch to find something that wasn't good, but it, it, right? Am I wrong, Marissa? What do you think? I mean, it was a pretty amazing week of data. Yeah. I mean, we got GDP, we got personal income, we've got housing data that looked good. Almost universally good. Yeah, I agree. Chris will, and I also agree that Chris will find the one thing that wasn't good. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> that's my Top contribution. Level, Thirty thousand foot. Anything at all that doesn't suggest the economy soft landing and performing well and going to perform well going forward. Anything at all? I mean, not at the moment. No. No. Right. No. GDP, yeah. PCE, everything is personal. Kind of coming in alignment. Measures, yeah. Yeah, Jobless yeah, claims rose, but they're still extremely low. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing, you know, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, they're the folks that put the GDP numbers together. They, you know, they, they put on their website these tables. And I, I first thing I do is I go look at the table number one, I guess. And it shows growth rates, you know, for different components of GDP. Not all the gory detail, kind of the top line, you know, consumption, durable, service, investment, uh, equipment, structures, information, intellectual property, you know, that kind of level. And when you look, every time you look down that column, you see pluses and minuses, you know, growth and, you know, adding to growth or subtracting from growth. The one thing that struck me about this report, I looked down the column, I saw, I didn't see a single negative, nothing. It was all, all positive. Right. Yeah. 
Marissa, you saw, did you see the same motor thing? vehicle production? I think was I, I, that's one a, level down. I think subtraction from growth. Yeah. You, I mean, it's a big economy. There's going to be something that's of course, negative, yeah. but kind of, you know, at the higher level of yeah. detail, durable goods spending, consumer spending, which is where motor vehicles are. It was, it was, I think it was a small positive, but it was positive. Uh, nothing, government spending, trade, inventories, business fixed investment, everything, everything was even there. residential fixed investment for the housing. Second. Yeah. 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 Right. right. Small, but yeah. Small positive, but positive. Well, well, of all the, of all the numbers this past week, Marissa, which one would you call out as being most representative of the reality of what's going on in the economy? Would it be GDP or would it be something else? It would be GDP and other things in that report, like the personal consumption expenditures index. I mean, that's another big thing. So we have GDP growth in the fourth quarter at 3.3% and core PCE at 2%, right? Core so PCE we, being? Yeah, the... Personal consumption's expenditure, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, stripping out energy and food prices. Right. So this is the overall deflator, 1.7% in the fourth quarter. Um, we got monthly numbers, I think, this morning mm -hmm. that I didn't look at. But I mean, we're we're right at the Fed's target on PCE for the fourth quarter with yeah, the above potential growth. Right. I mean, I, I think I looked at the monthly data that came out today in the last six months of 2023. So if I look at, you know, the second half of the year, June to December and, and annualize the increase in, in, in core consumer expenditure deflator inflation, it was 1.8. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the second significant digit, 1.86% annualized. That's, That's 1.9. Okay. 1.9. <laughs> That's below two. It's still, yeah. I mean, you look at that and you go, whoa, we're, I mean, could it be possible that we are, we're already back to the Fed's target? Is that, is that possible? It feels like it, Chris. It, it certainly is moving in that direction, right? Yeah. And even the year over year, uh, core PCE has the two handle, as my Wall Street friends like to say, 2.9%. So that's year over year, right? Through, yeah. Year over year. So it's, yeah. You know, spitting, spitting distance, uh, spitting distance. That's my phrase. Spitting distance of the target. Now, CPI, consumer price inflation, is a little bit higher. It is higher, but that's only by construction. The CPI puts a higher weight on the cost of housing services uh, than the PCE deflator that the, that the Fed's focused on, and that remains elevated. But that also is coming in pretty quickly mm -hmm. here. So, based on the Consumer expenditure deflator feels like we're already back to the Fed's target. Based on the CPI, we're not quite there, but as you say, spitting distance, you know, back to the target. Okay. Um, okay. Um, you know, any, anything else? I mean, you mentioned UI unemployment insurance claims yeah. that remain, right? So we have solid GDP growth, inflation that's closing in on the Fed's target, and we have a job market that is slowing gracefully with no sign of increased layoffs. It's right. like right. everything you want, right? Right. And of course, one of the more interesting thing, or there's so many interesting things, but one of the particularly interesting things is the economy is growing so strongly based on GDP. I think fourth quarter 
of last year compared to fourth quarter of this year, the growth rate was 3.1%. That's real GDP growth over the year. And in that period, unemployment actually increased a little bit. So that, you know, went from, I'm, 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 you know, splitting hairs here, but it went from, I don't know, three, 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 four to three, six, three, seven, something like that. Very, very low, but it moved higher, which would suggest that the economy's potential rate of growth is actually north of three. Now, I'm, you know, there are a lot of measurement things going on here, and I'm sure that probably overstates the case when we get some revisions to the data, downward revisions. But nonetheless, that suggests that the economy's, the supply side of the economy is is rip-roaring here, right? Can you interpret it any other way, Chris? No. Uh, no, 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 <laughs> certainly not. Uh, there was no recession in 2023. We can. Not only was there no recession in 23, <laughs> it was a fabulous year. Yes. I mean, on, I mean, it was like a really, really good year. No recession, but a really good year. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. And, yeah, consumers. And you kind of outdid themselves. Forward. Yeah, and you kind of look forward, and you're going, okay, you know. You know the forecast is say two percent for for twenty twenty four, but it feels like if we're going to be wrong, it's going to be stronger than that, not lower, less than that. No, it feels like that. I don't. I don't. Know if we're at a point where we change the forecast, but I don't know. There's uh, a lot of risk out there. Yeah. On the, that's, on, um, on the downside, or you're saying yeah. on the downside? Okay. Yeah. And there is a more upside risk to talk about too, but there is a lot of downside risk out there. Okay, l- l- we're going to keep this short because we want to get to Samim and, and talk about the treasury market. But okay, give me your number one worry. What's your number one worry, Marie, uh, Marissa? We're at, say we're, we are forecasting GDP growth calendar year 2024 of 2%. You know, the, you're saying the risk is that it'll be less than that. Why? You know, what, what what's the threat? I'm increasingly concerned about geopolitical risk. Um, It seems to be widening in the Middle East. So this could be, this could end up being a a bigger supply chain disruption or increase in oil prices or something like that. That that's my main worry right now. And of all geopolitical risk, you put the, the the kind of the turmoil in the Middle East, Israel, Hamas, what the Houthis are doing. The Houthis, yeah, that seems to be escalating, right? That's the Melania stuff. And the link back to us is through oil prices. Yeah. Okay. Through trade. Chris? Yeah, I guess along those lines, I see the most immediate threat, some some reacceleration of inflation, whether it's through an oil shock, supply chains. I think that's the, Mm. that's the crux of it. That, that's what would, Cause the Fed perhaps to pivot mm-hmm. more cuts, or certainly keeping uh, rates higher for more experience. I'm sorry, more uh, rate increases, uh, or certainly keeping uh, rates higher for an extended period of time. But that would mm-hmm. certainly slow things uh, down here. Geopolitical yeah, I, risk that that seems like the most obvious um, channel for that uh, reacceleration of inflation. I certainly Middle East, but I keep an eye on Russia, Ukraine as well. That's Certainly lots of uh, tensions in Europe, lots of fears and concern, anxiety uh, there as well. Yeah, but what you're saying is there's got to be some kind of exogenous, what I call an exogenous event, something that, you know, you, I mean, that you can't really predict. I mean, yeah, maybe in their scenarios and their darker scenarios, but it's not something that feels endogenous to the economy, something that's going to be internally generated it's something's got to happen 
you know, out there in the external world to create a problem. Um, and even those feel less, I have to say, there's always geopolitical risk. Uh, you didn't mention the presidential election here in the U.S. And yeah, overseas. that was my that was that, uh, my hesitation was, am I yeah. more worried about that or am I more yeah. worried about external forces? But, but that also would be an exogenous. Yeah, it just feels event. Yeah, it feels less. The, the, the endogenous positive surprise is we get more growth on the supply side of the economy, more labor force, more productivity growth. And yeah. we were able to grow more without generating inflation. That's kind of an endogenous positive risk to the forecast to get to a, a you know a downside scenario you've got to come up with a it feels like an exogenous risk it doesn't feel like something you know within the economy that's going to do us in but uh, unless there's yeah. something in the financial system which you you are very much worried about Good right point. and, and we'll point. lead into our next guest just yeah there's a lot of opacity in certain parts of the financial system that have tripped us up before, right? Where no one saw something coming. So if there's something in there that's exacerbated by a higher interest rate environment, for example, that could also be another thing that- Great point, great point. And that's the guess. And we'll get to them in one second. One last thing I'm going to do with you guys, because we haven't done this in a while, probability of a recession starting at some time in calendar year 2024. Marissa, tell me what you are today and where you were the last time we- did this? Uh, I, I think I'm still at 20%, maybe moving, maybe the softer side of 20%, but that's, I think, where I was the last time we did this. And the unconditional probability of recession would be about 15, mm-hmm. simply simply defined. So you're yeah. almost back to, this is going to be- Yeah, slightly elevated. Slightly elevated. Chris? Uh, I think I was at 35, and I would knock it down to 30. 30. So still higher. I think that the downside risks uh, outweigh the uh, the upside risks here. I, I, you know, I was at twenty five. I'm going to fifteen. I'm, wow, I'm, I'm there. I think he's I back think, to I, normal. I think the risks are perfectly symmetric now, both on the upside mm-hmm. and the downside. I don't. I don't think the downside risks are predominant at this point. And I'm very close to declaring a victory, soft landing. Uh, not quite there yet, but but. I- yeah, like when can we stop talking about this? Yeah, you know, I like think- is it, is it? Um, I mean, it, I think it's mostly inflation based, right? Once, once the Fed is in a interest rate normalization period, and once we, we can confidently say that inflation is back at the Fed's target and it's staying there. I guess is when we stop talking about the risk of recession, and I think when they cut the first rate cut, boom, uh-huh. that's it. Then- that's when I would declare victory, I think. It'd be yeah, unless it's a rate cut because of recession. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we've got a lot to discuss uh, with regard to the risks to the financial system. And we're going to focus on the treasury market. And with that, let's uh, bring in our guest, Samim Gamami. Hi, Samim. Hi, Mark. Good to see you. You know, I hope I'm not being too forward, but to, are, are you Egyptian? What what kind of name is Gamami? I'm just really curious. Sure, I'm originally uh, I'm originally from Iran. Oh, yeah. geez, Mark. Louise. Oh Mark. my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I should know that. Zandi's of course Iranian. You, you right. know that. You know that. Yeah. I did not know yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Gamami is. Uh, yeah, uh, I was born in Iran. Yeah. Tehran. Uh, in Tehran. Oh, when did you come yeah. to the country? This country. Uh, almost 20 years ago. Oh, very good. Uh, well, yeah. it's, it's good to have you. And 
Well, well, maybe it's a good, a good place for you just to give us a, a sense of you. Uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of your background. You're at the SEC now, but uh, how'd you get there? Uh, sure. Uh, so, so, I mean, uh, my background is a mix of working in academia, private sector, and official sector. Uh, I've been affiliated with UC Berkeley and NYU on the official sector side uh, prior to joining the SEC. I work uh, for the Federal Reserve Board as an economist and then at the U.S. Treasury uh, uh, as a senior economist and associate director of research at the Office of Financial Research that uh, that I'm sure you know about. Uh, and uh, on the private sector side, uh, I've worked for Goldman Sachs as an economist. I've also worked for uh, a buy-side firm. And uh, I joined the SEC last year, and uh, I'm working on uh, some of the uh, commission's uh, initiatives and proposals on different parts of the uh, financial market. And I will just need to mentioned the usual disclaimer that, I mean, my views uh, obviously are my personal views and not uh, reflected by the uh, commission, commissioners, the SEC uh, chair, and my colleagues at the SEC. Got it. Um, you know, you, it seems like you've done an awful lot in 20 years. <laughs> I, I can't, I couldn't keep up. That's a lot in 20 years. <laughs> Yeah, it, it has been intense. <laughs> yeah, very cool. And the OFR Office of Financial Research that was the um, the the group that was set up. I guess it's part of Treasury. Is it part of Treasury? I'm not part sure. Part of Treasury uh, after the Dodd Frank Act, uh, and uh, I mean, officially supporting the mandate of EFSOC. Yeah, and so OFR kind of scans the financial landscape to try to identify potential threats and risks you know the idea being we to, all got to financial stability yep, yeah financial exactly. stability we all got surprised by the financial crisis you know where did that come from and the intent here is to uh, be prepared or, or more prepared for you know the possibility that something could go wrong in the system exactly exactly yeah. and your job your, your work at sec so Maybe where are you in the kind of the hierarchy uh, there? Where are uh, so you? So I'm an economist working at a division called DIRA, Division of Economic and Risk Analysis. Hmm. Oh, okay, very interesting. And you've been there for for a year. Yep. And uh, I thought it'd be really good to have a conversation uh, because you are focused on one uh, potential uh, problem or threat in the financial system, and that's. Uh, the the way I frame it, and I'm I'll, I'll just riff for a minute and then turn it back to you and see if you frame it in a different way, is liquidity in the treasury market. We, you know, the treasury yes. market, the treasury securities market is is a massive market, the largest in the world, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, if based on that, you would think this market has to be really deep and well functioning, and you know, there there's very little chance that you'd have any trouble with uh, trading in this market. But we have had trouble uh, at different points in time, and we should talk about those points in time. Pandemic in the teeth of the pandemic would, is one of the one of the most recent good examples. And liquidity break seemingly breaks down, or it becomes disconnected, and the market isn't functioning well, and 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 that's a problem, a potential problem, because the treasury market is so critical to the well functioning of the global financial system. It's the benchmark. You know, the 10-year treasury yield is kind of the benchmark interest rate for all other financial securities. Everything gets priced off of that. And if 
you don't have liquidity in this market and you can't get reasonable pricing, the whole financial system feels like it could be at risk uh, of, of not functioning properly or, or well. Uh, do, do I have that roughly right? Is, is, exactly. Exactly, Mark. Yes, exactly. As you pointed out, uh, it's the most uh, important financial market in the world. And uh, I mean, for different reasons, uh, the Fed's monetary policy gets through uh, treasury markets. Uh, I mean, essentially, that's the uh, uh, treasury securities are benchmark securities for pricing almost all assets uh, in the financial market. And of course, uh, the Treasury essentially finances uh, uh, activities of the U.S. government uh, through uh, debt issuance. Uh, most of the debt issuance uh, will be based on is based on uh, marketable securities, and I mean the size of Treasury market uh, is massive, as you know. Uh, marketable securities by the end of uh, 2023 last year were. Uh, more than uh, $25 trillion. Yeah, almost 100% of GDP, right? It's, uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's grown very rapidly. <clears throat> I mean, if you go back before the financial crisis, and I'm speaking from memory, so I may not have this exactly yeah. right, but the publicly traded debt to GDP, publicly traded treasury debt to GDP. Doubled. Yeah, it was less than 50%. I think it was closer yeah. to 40%, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And it had been quite stable, uh, for many decades after World War II, and you know, mm-hmm. it went up and it went down depending on uh, conditions, but generally, kind of 40, 50 percent of GDP. And then, since the financial crisis, it, it's ballooned, you know, to exactly 100 percent of GDP. And all the trend lines don't order well here. I mean, in the sense that we're going to see significant increases in debt going forward, unless we change policy dramatically, which doesn't feel like. Fiscal policy doesn't feel like that's happening anytime soon. So this market is big. It's gotten bigger over time, and it feels like it's going to get really big going forward. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, and uh, I, I mentioned that you know we've had these periods of what I'll call illiquidity, where yep. trading between buyers and sellers kind of have broken down. Mm-hmm. Uh, bid ass spreads have kind of gapped out, widened, uh, mm-hmm. and it's been been difficult to trade. The one that comes to mind is when the pandemic first hit. It felt like uh, we had a a bit of a, a bout of illiquidity. Is that the most recent example of the illiquidity, or a good example yes. of the yeah, illiquidity? Exactly. So that's the most uh, recent one, and uh, roughly the most uh, intense one in terms of. Uh, volatility in treasury securities and like you mentioned different measures of illiquidity i mean uh i mean the most uh basic one the ones that you just mentioned be that spread but before that uh, uh i'm sure you know about uh there was the repo market disruption in 20 september 2019 before that it was the uh flash crash in uh uh in October 2014, but um, those two uh, market disruptions were not comparable to what we uh, witnessed uh, in March and April of 2020. Yeah, and and can you just describe the symptoms of that illiquidity? What what happened exactly? Uh, sure. Uh, so. I mean, we can, I think, I mean, we can think of uh, illiquidity. I mean, one measure of that we just discussed uh-huh. 
BDAN aspirates as a function of uh, uh, market liquidity in normal uh, market volatility in normal times. So uh, the COVID shock hit the economy uh, and uh, treasury securities uh, became more volatile. So that explains uh, parts of the market illiquidity that we observed in March 2020. But uh, it turned out that uh, the illiquidity uh, was much uh, more intense than uh, could be explained by just uh, market volatility. And that was essentially due to uh, the constraints on the balance sheet and market making capacity of uh, uh, large broker dealers that are mostly uh, subsidiaries of large banks. Uh, so one may ask uh, what caused the uh, balance sheet constraints and constraints on market. stop you before we move forward. Sure. So, uh, sure. and I want to get to that in, a, in a, just a, a few minutes. I just want to flesh this out a little bit. You know, if I go back sure. to that event, you know, in the in the early part of the pandemic, you know, what we saw was the illiquidity manifested in, in, as you say, extraordinary volatility in interest rates. Yields are going all over the place. Yep. And I, I, you know, and this is just my, in my mind's eye and I haven't uh, investigated, but I'm curious, you know, if you observed that the market, the bond market, the treasury market, it feels more volatile in time than in time. So when I say that, you know, in a given day, it feels like the yield on the 10 year treasury bond can move five, 10, even 15 basis points, you know, which if I go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it felt like it would move a basis point or two. And that was a big deal. Now it just can, it can move so fast so quickly. Is is that is that something else or is that a part of the liquidity so, issue? So that's a very good point, Mark. So that's um, because of the change in market structure for treasury securities in the past uh, 10, 15, 20 years. So uh, prior to that period of time, uh, most of the interdealer market uh, used to be intermediated by uh, uh, large uh, broker dealers that I just mentioned were subsidiaries of large banks. But uh, in the past several years, uh, uh, most of the transactions in the interdealer market is being are being intermediated by uh, uh, principal the so-called principal trading firms. And most of the tr principal trading firms are uh, high-frequency uh, trading firms. So that has essentially increased the speed of trading, even in the interdealer part of the uh, treasury market. The second segment of the treasury market is the dealer-to-client part. The dealer-to-client part can be viewed as essentially the uh, uh, traditional bilateral uh, over-the-counter or OTC uh, market. Most of the trading activity is being done in the interdealer market. Now, uh, principal trading firms, high-frequency trading firms, as I just mentioned, uh, play a very important role. And uh, this combination and the presence of ETFs have uh, essentially, to some extent, increased uh, the normal volatility that we observe in uh, uh, in the treasury market. Okay, so so to restate that, uh, if you go back 
10, 15, 20 years ago, the trading was done by these large broker dealers that were part that are they're still around and they still keep part of the market, but they were the market back 15, 20 years ago. And these are these are parts of large banks like a JP Morgan Chase or Bank exactly. of America, that kind of thing. Exactly. But increasingly over time, the broker dealers uh, their share of this trading has declined, and in the in the wake of that, we've seen uh, an increase in the trading done by principal, as you call them, principal trading firms. Right. Which I tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I call them hedge funds. I mean, <laughs> uh, not uh, not exactly, I mean, not not necessarily. So one example okay. is uh, Citadel Securities, right? Citadel, so Citadel right. Securities, yeah. Citadel Securities. Uh, is a, a, a broker dealer, is a market-making uh, financial firm, uh, but Citadel itself is a, a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, uh, I mean, the distinction can get blurry, but there are examples like Citadel where Citadel, Citadel Securities is not a market, uh, is a market maker, uh, uh, not a, is a broker dealer, market maker, not, not a hedge fund. Okay. Okay. So, so Citadel plays both roles. It, it, it plays a kind of a broker, traditional broker dealer intermediation, but it also has an arm that, you know, it, it, it's, it's buying and selling. Two separate, two, two separate, separate entities, things. two separate, two things. separate entities, okay. two separate financial firms, Citadel Securities and Citadel yeah. LLC. Yeah. Uh, okay. But the increase in volatility that I'm feeling and that, you know, I'm observing is real volatility that you know in a, any given day or hour I, I'm seeing bigger swings in in the interest rate on Treasury securities that is happening and that's partly or more significantly due to this kind of change in the market structure away from broker dealers kind of managing the trading the intermediation to yes. these principal trading firms. Right. So I'm not fully away from traditional broker dealers. So roughly half of the share in the interdealer market is being done by PTFs, principal trading firms, and the other half still by uh, bank affiliated broker dealers, but mostly in uh, electronic trading platforms and mostly in the format of high frequency trading. Okay. Okay. Very good. And uh, would another reason for the increase in volatility be uh, just who the buyers are? So, I mean, if I go, in, 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 if going back to that pandemic event, you know, in the early part of the pandemic, the way we got out of that isn't, you know, the way market uh, functioning was restored was the Fed stepped in, right? Stepped in in a big way and and, and bought exactly. treasuries. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, in... Uh, in uh, the first quarter of 2020, uh, the Fed purchased more than one uh, trillion dollar of uh, treasury securities, mostly uh, because of uh, what, I mean what is called a market function purchase program, essentially to calm down the treasury uh, market. Part of that was, uh, you know, because of uh, uh, QE uh, following the COVID shock. But uh, Fed intervened aggressively and massively. Yeah. Oh, okay, so the QE, the quantitative easing, that was the Fed coming in buying securities in an effort to get long-term interest rates down, and uh, in so doing, they helped to re restore market functioning in this period when there was this illiquidity in the market. That's right. 
That's Got right. it. But okay. uh, there is research showing how we can uh, uh, essentially distinguish the QE part of uh, uh, uh-huh. QE part of Fed in, uh, intervention from their uh, um, uh, market function purchase program. Oh, interesting. And uh, at least for the first quarter of 2020, uh, most of that was uh, purchases of uh, treasury securities. And as I just mentioned, roughly around or more than $1 trillion. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And uh, of course, uh, one thing that's now happening is the Fed is no longer QEing, it's QTing. You know, it's mm-hmm. letting the, sec- the treasury securities on its own. Ba- it, it bought all these treasury securities when it was QEing to keep rates down. Now it's QTing. It's allowing those securities to mature. Uh, and if they're mortgage securities, it potentially prepay, although I don't think there's much prepayment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it's in a kind of a very different place with, with regard to the treasury market. And instead of providing s- liquidity and support to the market, it's now uh, pulling away from the market. It's, it's, I, you know, I don't know what the right way to say it is. It's not adding to the illiquidity, but it's certainly not helping in terms of liquidity. Would that be fair to uh, say? Uh, yes, that's, that's fair. To, that's fair to say. But I mean, at the same time, I guess, uh, I think it's, uh, I mean, one important point is, uh, I mean, uh, there is a tension bet- there could be a tension between, like you mentioned, monetary policy and central bank uh, market function purchase program when uh, the central bank, the Fed wants to tighten monetary policy exactly because of what you pointed out. But uh, the two could be aligned uh, uh, during the time of quantitative easing. Uh, and I mean, we can discuss this further, but uh, if you're interested, but uh, that, that in part motivates this discussion on uh, whether it's better to do um, uh, emergency central bank asset purchase uh, programs uh, uh, with good design or uh, uh, think about uh, uh, fiscal buyback programs through which uh, 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 treasury would uh, uh, purchase uh, securities uh, uh, during market uh, stress. Oh, interesting. Is it, has that ever happened? Has it, has the treasury ever done that? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. in the nineties, uh, but, uh, at that time, um, uh, us was, uh, running, uh, budget surplus, not budget deficit. Yeah. Right. Uh, that time was different, but, uh, actually this year, uh, the treasury, uh, is designing a, uh, buyback program. Uh, it hasn't been finalized yet, uh, as far as I know, but that won't be an emergency uh, buyback program. Mm-hmm. That is uh, what is often referred to as a re- regular and predict- predictable buyback program. Got it. Got it. Before we move on to the uh, things we can do to help improve uh, the liquidity of the market, and I know you, you've done a lot of work here and want to go through that. Uh, and before before that, we're going to play the game. But I want to continue to explore potentially other reasons why the market is feels less liquid and why there's more volatility. And one of the other um, potential explanations, it was something I alluded to earlier, that hedge funds 
while the while the Federal Reserve has been kind of moving away from the market through QT, uh, hedge funds have been coming into the market. They're playing, they're playing their big role in the increasingly the role in the market. And there's a, a a trade called a basis trade where they're kind of playing the futures market off the cash market. And they're, you know, they're if there's a little bit of a spread there and they can make money and they can make a ton of money if they're using a you know a lot of leverage to do so. Do I did I describe that right? And how big a deal is that? Is that something we should be worried about? Uh, so, so that was uh, uh, that was something uh, that was uh, of concern in uh, the first quarter of 2020. Uh, so exactly, Mark, like you mentioned, that's a, essentially a, uh, uh, the the basis trade has become a popular long and short investment strategy among hedge funds that essentially uh, is uh, purchasing uh, or going long treasury securities uh, and selling or going short uh, uh, treasury futures because at least around that time that we have been discussing uh, treasury securities uh, were cheaper compared to uh, uh, treasury futures uh, in the derivatives markets. And um, it is well known that, uh, I mean, uh, when everything is predictable, when uh, markets don't face uh, shock and extreme volatility, this type of long short strategies uh, would converge, right? And hedge funds uh, uh, use a lot of leverage uh, so they can uh, profit from the small spread uh, uh, associated with this long and short or basis trade. But when uh, uh, the COVID shock hit the financial system, markets became more volatile and hedge funds had to uh, unwind these uh, positions massively. And that also contributed to uh, a so-called uh, negative demand shock in the treasury market, essentially selling pressure by hedge funds as well. So that's something that uh, I think the official sector is uh, uh, closely monitoring, meaning, uh, like you mentioned, hedge funds, principal uh, trading firms are essentially now liquidity providers in the treasury market. But uh, I mean, naturally, uh, they would take leverage uh, so that they can generate uh, profit for their investors. And sometimes when leverage hedge funds deleverage suddenly, and we know that from the global financial crisis, uh, that could destabilize the financial system. So that is something that is closely being monitored. One, uh, one cause of the uh, disruption in the treasury market in uh, March 2020. And the other one, and I think the main one is that, like, like we discussed at the beginning, uh, treasury securities, the amount of treasury securities outstanding is going up because of the fiscal deficit. And at the same time, because of some bank capital and liquidity regulation that has made them safer, but uh, it has uh, essentially reduced the market making capacity of large banks. That was uh, another main cause of the problem. Got it. Got it. So, so uh, just to reiterate, what what's happening is uh, uh, the uh, large broker dealers that were key to this mar- that are still key, but were more instrumental yeah. in managing the market and providing liquidity and intermediating between buyers and sellers. 
they had they're they're not keeping up with the growth in the exactly uh, size of the treasury market and exactly in 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 the reason for that or one of the reasons or maybe multiple is uh, capital uh, cap, kind of the capital rules are making it more difficult from an economic perspective for the big banks to grow the size of their broker dealers to keep up with the rapid growth of the the size of the treasury market is that is that fair exactly yeah. Yeah. so capital regulation has made the <clears throat> banking sector uh, obviously safe after the global financial crisis but uh, some of the capital rules we can discuss if you are interested uh, essentially have adversely uh, affected the market making capacity of bank affiliated broker dealers essentially extremely active in, in treasury markets got it got it um there's one other thing i wanted to bring up um shoot uh i can't quite remember it'll come back to me but maybe at this point before we move on uh i want to play the game next and then come back to reforms and changes um turn the conversation back to Chris and Marissa there this is hard to digest this is this conversation is we're now deep into the plumbing which by the way I think it's critical because it's the stuff that's deep in the plumbing that does you in you know it's it's it, you know the stuff that's so obvious that's not the thing that's going to be the problem the financial system isn't going to uh, seize up on that and we're not going to have a crisis based on that it's the stuff that it's hard to understand. It's not completely transparent. It's a little bit more opaque, a little bit more difficult to get your mind around that will do you in. So this is very important that we take this dive into the plumbing, but nonetheless, it's in the plumbing. And it's very complicated. <laughs> so so Chris, uh, based on the conversation so far, uh, any questions or comments or other questions you'd like to pose to Samim? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll perhaps ask a uh, naive, maybe terribly basic question just to far away those are good um what about um so just thinking about treasury markets in general there's been a lot of chatter about uh, foreign investors and foreign central banks pulling back not only for financial reasons but exposure to the dollar is a concern right so you have some countries like china russia certainly um concerned about dollar exposure other countries maybe as well uh fearing that do you see that uh foreign investment playing any role in the treasury liquidity story? Um, uh, so so um, I don't think so uh, in the sense, uh, I mean, compared to uh, the market disruption that we observed in March 2020, uh, I don't think that would be a concern. But that's, I mean, exposure to dollar. But that said, I mean, uh, Let's compare the global financial crisis to uh, the 2020 COVID crisis. Uh, in uh, 2008, around September 2008, uh, foreigners, both the uh, uh, foreign official sector and foreign investors, uh, uh, purchased massively uh, treasury securities, particularly uh, uh, at the longer uh, maturity part of the yield curve. But uh, in contrast to that, in 2020, uh, foreigners, both the official sector and uh, foreign investors, massively sold uh, treasury securities. Again, uh, the, the long maturity ones. But that wasn't because of uh, uh, currency dominance or currency issues. It was because uh, of, the, of the massive holding of treasury securities by the official sector uh, of foreign countries and uh i mean uh and the investors 
I mean, one could ask what, uh, I mean, what changed the trend uh, when we compared the 2008 and uh, 2020 uh, uh, crisis, COVID crisis, uh, but that that's a that's a different issue. Okay, uh, Marissa, any any anything you want to pose? Any, I mean, again, this is a complicated topic, so n- no naive questions. There there are no naive questions. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's been a lot of volatility in in interest rates, right? Recently, we've seen the ten year go up, down, all over the place. Um, is any of, certainly we know that some of that is just based on movements, typical economic news, what the Fed does and says, um, but it's been very volatile lately. Is any of this related, do you think, to any of this high frequency trading that hedge funds are doing or uh, you know any of the liquidity issues in the treasury market? Can you Can you always tell what is driving that volatility? Uh, so that's a very good uh, that's a very good point and question. So I think I mean uh, maybe it's helpful to think of like we discussed before uh, market. Uh, I mean illiquidity being function being a function of market volatility and other factors like uh, the market making capacity of large banks. Uh, another factor, like you mentioned, is, uh, I mean, uh, the presence of principal trading firms. But you mentioned at the beginning, more recently, there are other events. So, for example, we know that uh, volatility in the treasury market uh, increased also around the uh, uh, default of the SVB bank uh, in March 2023. 20, uh, so, at that time, so a combination of uh, market events, uh, uh, Federal Reserve tightening monetary policy uh, to mitigate inflation. Uh, so, so there are ma- there are many factors in play. Yeah, but uh, but-, but I would just also mention that uh, I mean since uh, twenty twenty, particularly last year uh, in twenty twenty three, the level of uh, market volatility that we observed uh, in the treasury market is comparable to the level that we observed in the first quarter of 2020. But last year, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't any uh, uh, meaningful disruption in the treasury mm-hmm. market. Oh, so because of that, it's important, uh, I mean, uh, essentially to to increase, diversify, and stabilize the market-making capacity overall uh, in the uh, in the treasury markets. Okay, so what you're saying is, uh, we the the volatility that we're observing may have nothing to do with any kind of illiquidity in the market. It's just the conditions that are buffeting the market. Everything that's, that's else right. going so on. The, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one other quick, I'll throw it out as another potential factor. Maybe investors are kind of sort of thinking about credit risk for the first time ever. I mean, you know, debt limit uh, debacle, rating agencies downgrading. Is Could that potentially also be certainly part of the volatility, maybe also a, a concern in the context of liquidity in the market? Where um, am I so- stretching? Uh, so, so um, to be honest with you, I don't know about investors' concern about uh, default risk. Uh, 
that that might be uh, hard to judge or analyze at this stage. But mm, I mean, uh, I mean, another way to to look at it, I mean, like we discussed before, is because of the I mean massive uh, budget deficit. Uh, at any uh, treasury auction, for example, that happened last November, uh, one could think that, okay, uh, treasury prices uh, uh, went down, yields went up. Uh, that was because of investors' uh, concern that they may not want to or may not be absorbed the treasury securities in the secondary part of the treasury market. So, I'm not sure if we can tie it mm -hmm. directly to the default risk, but that's mm -hmm. due to the, let's say, due to the debt to GDP ratio going up. Got mm -hmm. it. Okay. All right. But we're going to come back to what do we, well, what do, what should be done about all this? And there's a lot of good sure. ideas. And I know you've been working on that and we'll come back to it. But before that, let's play the game, the stats game. We each put forward a statistic. Uh, the rest of the group tries to figure that out through questions, deductive reasoning, clues. The best stat is one that's not so easy. We get it all immediately, not one that's not so hard. We never get it. And if it's apropos to the topic at hand, fantastic. And we'll let Marissa go first. That's tradition. And uh, Samim, you'll see how this is done. So uh, Marissa, you're up. Okay. Uh, my statistic is 1.1 percentage points. 1.1 percentage points. Inflation related? No. Is it related to this topic at hand? No. Treasury. Oh, so it's an economic no. statistic. It's an economic statistic. Okay. GDP related. It is GDP related. Okay. Uh, some component of GDP that grew 1.1%? No, let me give you a, a hint. Okay. It's the difference between two numbers. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's the difference between the core PC, the consumer expenditure flator and the CPI. I think that is 1.1%. But I, thought that was, I thought that was <laughs> one exactly. Oh, is it one? Is it one percentage uh, point know. on the nose? Okay. So it's a difference between two things in the GDP report. Uh, what? GDP and GDI. No. No. That didn't come out. That's right? a difficult one. <laughs> That's a difficult one. Yeah. Um, can you give us any other hints without giving it away? You might not like this statistic. Oh. Oh. Doesn't okay. fit the uh, narrative. Oh, I know what it is. I do know what it is. It's the error in her yes. podcast. That was a good hint, by the way. That was a good hint, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You want to explain? Uh, yes, it is the forecast miss. So it's the difference between actual reported fourth quarter GDP growth, which was 3.3%, and what our forecast was for GDP growth, which was 1.1 percentage points lower than that. And I'll, and we're not alone in this, right? We were actually closer to the GDP number than consensus was. So um, By a lot, I thought. The consensus was 1.5. We yeah, were 2.2 yeah. so, and the reality I mean, was 3.3. There was yeah. a universally large yeah. uh, miss on the GDP number that came out the other day. Yeah. We missed, because uh, I pay really close attention to those numbers, we missed on trade and inventory, which yeah. are particularly hard to forecast because yes. they're lagged. They're very lagged in terms of the monthly yeah. data that we have. But I and I'm I'd be I and I suspect there might be some revision here once we get more data. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, uh, okay. this is the first estimate, so we'll get yeah. 
two more revisions in the subsequent months. And yeah, we may see a, a downgrade. Yeah. Inventories had contributed a lot to GDP in the third quarter. So we were expecting the change in inventories to be much less and detract from GDP growth. And it was actually a slight positive again for the second quarter in a row. So that, that was, was good. that was a big mess. That was a good one. That was really good. Um, okay, Samim, you're up. Uh, I, I, you said you were going to play. I've never, I don't think I've ever gotten a government official to play the stats game. So congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> so, so I mentioned two, uh, I mean, um, uh, these are not accurate uh, stats, but I mean, average numbers. Oh, well, hold on, hold on. So, yeah. That's not really fair, Samim, if they're not well, accurate statistics. I mean, I'll Go tell ahead, you I'm later, why, why, why not accurate? Uh, yeah. so, so one is, and uh, I mean, one one hint is they both go back to uh, statistics related to uh, Q3 and Q4 of last year. Okay. So one is uh, uh, roughly 6% or 6.2%, and the other one is roughly uh, 5%. 5% was... Related to our discussion, another hint. Well, the 5%, could that be the 10-year treasury yield, the peak in the 10-year treasury yield? Uh, that that's uh, that's right, Mark. But that's actually the average of one-year uh, yield on bills, uh, uh, two-year oh, note, oh. and ten-year. Uh, oh no, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you took the average of the yield on the one-year, the, the the on the two-year note, two-year and, and the ten-year, yeah. and it was five percent. Yep. Partial credit, Mark. Partial credit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, now why why would you do that? Oh, but just because that's kind so, of the blended cost of cost no, of. I'll blended? tell you after after. Oh, okay, you, okay. Okay. The other one is the key. Six point two percent. Is that the off the run yield on treasuries? I mean, uh, one's no. the uh, no, no. Okay, on the run one. Uh, okay, we don't even have to go down that path because that's a that would be a big spread. That would be way too big a spread. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, and it's related to the liquidity of the treasury market. No. Oh, no. okay. okay. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. Related to GDP. Oh, related oh. to GDP. Oh, interesting. Uh, is that nominal GDP growth? Exactly. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. Okay, that's interesting. So, so okay. So, explain what I mean. Why? Why did you pick those those numbers? Uh, and the reason is, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know this uh, debate and discussion about RNG, uh, the, uh, the the nominal growth rate in GDP and its importance in comparison with the uh, average uh, interest rate. Uh, that's essentially uh, uh, a gauge based on which we can see whether uh, the government can roll over its debt. When R is below G, that's doable. Uh, when R gets close to G or exceeds G, uh, uh, the the fiscal uh, deficit may not be sustainable. Yeah, and five and six were quite close, so that's uh, that's a warning sign. <laughs> yeah. So if you do kind of the uh, debt, the math around the the debt, if you're uh, growth rate, your nominal growth rate is higher than your your co cost of borrowing. You, you it gives you a lot of latitude. You know the debt to GDP uh, won't balloon out 
Uh, but if yep. if uh, your nominal growth rate is less than or close to your your uh, your your what you're borrowing at, you got a problem. Uh, then exactly. things become unsustainable very quickly. Got exactly. it. That's very good. Uh, that was that was good. That was a really good one. <laughs> uh, Chris, you're up. Okay. My numbers are not treasury market related. Uh, economic data that came out this week. My hint is um, a lot of positive numbers this, that came out this week, Mark. I'm yeah. sure you're going to highlight them. So I, I had know. to look for something, you know, not bring so it back good. down. Uh, 19% and 53.2%. <clears throat> and it's in the economic data that came out this week. Correct. Yeah. Government related statistic? Yes. It's a government statistic. 19% and 52%? 50, 53.2%. Uh, in in G, the GDP numbers? No. Okay. <clears throat> oh, is it uh, bankruptcies? Oh, bingo. Ah, Marissa, <laughs> on fire. <laughs> that's, uh, so, yeah. Personal bankruptcy filings? Yep, that's the year-over-year increase in okay. personal bankruptcies. So that was nineteen percent, fifty-three percent increase, fifty-three point two percent increase in uh, business uh, bankruptcies. All right, so those are big numbers. Yep. You know, uh, certainly raises some eyebrows. I saw a number of financial analysts on TV talking about them that there's real concern about yep. the rise in bankruptcies, and, and certainly there is. However, a little context needed. Um, we're still well below what we yeah. the level of bankruptcy that we had in 2019, right? Personal bankruptcies are about 35, close to 40 percent below uh, 2019 level. So, you know, little context there. Even and business bankruptcies as well are are still below that 2019 level. So, at this point, seems more like normalization than uh, a real concern, but something to certainly keep an eye on. I, I guess I'd also point out. Business formations have been extraordinary. They have. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you have formations, you're going to failure, right? By almost by definition, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm that does uh, that doesn't. Uh, it's not enough. It not enough to not, bring no, it back down. Not, nah, nah. Any, but anyway, uh, okay. Here's mine. Um, three numbers, all related uh, to the topic at hand. Ninety-eight percent. One hundred and fifteen percent. And one hundred and eighty-one percent. That to GDP. That to GDP ratio yeah, yeah. over time. Very good. Oh, that was boy. Yeah. You guys are yeah, good. Exactly. But okay, you got to give me the years. You got to give so me ten the... years from now. Uh, the uh, one hundred fifteen percent. Ten Very years good. from now. Yeah. And yeah. the last one, one eighty-one. I think thirty years from now. Oh my gosh, you guys wow. are fantastic! Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so I mean, you could play this this game anytime. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the actual uh, publicly traded debt to GDP as of twenty twenty three, I think it's fiscal year. This is data from the Congressional Budget Office. Was ninety eight percent. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. No policy changes. You know, assuming no change in policy, ten years from now, it's going to be one hundred and fifteen percent. And and uh, 30 years from now in 2053, 181%. I think that's when the CBO ends its forecast, but I think you could do your own forecast after that. And at some point, R is going to be above G, uh, you know, in that kind of scenario. And that that's just not sustainable. But that brings it back to the conversation at hand. You know, yeah, you know, I suspect we will see some policy changes uh, here on the other side of the election that might change that trajectory a little bit. 
but the, it's going to be hard to change it a whole lot. Uh, and you know, the size of the treasury market is going to continue to grow. And because of the constraints on the broker dealer market that we just discussed, you know, the kind of the capital rules, they're not, I don't think we're going to change. The, I don't think the regulator is going to change those. That leaves us with, you know, the treasury market is vulnerable to illiquidity. Now it's going to be even more vulnerable going forward unless we make some reforms. And so, I mean, let me turn it back to you. Uh, I know there's been a lot of work here. You're kind of uh, been doing a lot of work here. And I, I, and I should say the good news here is that this concern about the treasury market is not something that others aren't thinking about, you know, at Jackson hole, for example, that's exactly. the confab that the fed holds every year. They had Daryl Duffy, by the way, Daryl Duffy, I don't, uh, he used to be on the board of directors of the Moody's. He was a Stanford professor. Yes. Yes. He gave a speech yes. on this yes. issue and put forward yes. some proposals. So this is not new news. We, we know this is an issue, but let me turn it back to you. So I mean, like at sure. the top of the list of things that we could do, what, what would you do to address this problem? Uh, sure. Uh, so I would uh, mention, Mark, uh, some of the uh, uh, well-known proposed reforms, uh, some of them put forward by uh, Doriel Duffy and uh, the, uh, the group of 30. So one is uh, going back to uh, uh, the beginning of our discussion. Uh, one is, uh, I mean, improving uh, bank capital and bank capital and liquidity regulation. So a quick example is, uh, as you know, uh, I mean, before the global uh, financial crisis, bank capital rules were uh, almost always risk-based, meaning if I have a, a risky loan uh, on the asset side of my balance sheet, I would need to hold more uh, equity capital against that as a buffer. And if I have a US treasury security on the asset side of my balance sheet, uh, I can be penalized less and hold less uh, equity capital. So one of the major part of uh, bank capital regulation reform after the GFC was having a backstop to these risk-based capital rules, uh, uh, which are size-based rules. As you know, these are called uh, uh, leverage requirements. So in my example, if the leverage requirement uh, Binds for a large bank, then the treasury security uh, on the balance sheet would be penalized uh, uh, in a similar way uh, 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 as in the case of a risky loan. So one uh, one proposed reform has been uh, improving uh, and realigning risk-based capital requirements and uh, uh, leverage ratio requirements. Uh, for example, uh, one idea is to uh, exempt uh, uh, treasury securities uh, from the leverage ratio requirement. And in fact, uh, uh, the, the Fed asset purchase program uh, went through really successfully by the end of the first quarter of 2020 when uh, the Federal Reserve uh, Essentially, uh, when uh, treasury securities uh, became exempted from uh, the uh, the so-called super uh, uh, supplementary leverage ratio, right? So that's that's one category of reforms. I mean, realigning. That, that uh, seems resources. like a pretty straightforward slam dunk kind of thing to do. What's the why wouldn't we do that? 
Um, is there any good reason why? What I mean, what's the downside to exempting so, treasuries from uh, liquidity requirements? So uh, I think at this sure. So I think at this stage, uh, based on what we have observed uh, uh, since the global financial crisis, there is no good reason. Okay. But uh, I mean. Uh, proponents of the leverage ratio requirement would always point to the fact that uh, right before the global financial crisis, I mean, risk-based capital, uh, uh, I mean, ratios at large banks, uh, you know, were all good. (laughs) So uh, that didn't uh, signal any uh, stress in the financial system. Another is risk-based capital. Another argument is risk-based capital requirements are very, uh, very complex. They can be gamed. But I mean, setting that aside, I think the experience uh, of the COVID crisis showed that it makes sense to uh, think about some type of exemption, uh, permanent or temporary, for I mean, reserves and uh, treasuries from the uh, leverage ratio requirement. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to have a leverage. I think it makes sense to have a leverage ratio requirement. You have to be careful exactly. how you set it relative to your risk-based capital standards. But yeah. exactly, but it's about the calibration of leverage. Yeah, but not, but not to. It seems like you should exempt treasury securities. If you if, if we're going to exempt treasury securities, that seems like a pretty straightforward from that from that leverage. That seems like a pretty straightforward thing to do. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Fine. That's right. Okay. That That's sounds right. good. Okay. That's second right. on your list. Uh, so the second one is, uh, I mean, broader central clearing for treasury securities. So if you remember when we discussed the market structure for treasuries, I mentioned, for example, the uh, client to uh, dealer segment of the treasury securities market is essentially an OTC market being done mostly bilaterally. Even in the inter-dealer market between uh, bank-affiliated broker dealers and principal trading firms, I mean, uh, more, I mean, uh, it's only around 20% of trades uh, being cleared through uh, central counterparties mm-hmm. uh, or CCPs. So, uh, and I mean, the benefits of central clearing uh, are well known. Uh, I mean, the obvious one is it would bring more uh, transparency to the financial system. It could make the financial system less interconnected. Uh, the less obvious one probably is it could, under some conditions, uh, mitigate counterparty credit risk. So the second category of reform, uh, the proposed, the main proposed reform has been, as I said, a broader central clearing mandate uh, in the treasury market. And uh, actually the SEC, I mean, adopted the, its final rule uh, last December uh, and it, it will uh, hopefully get implemented uh, fully uh, by mid-2026. Got it, got it. So we've got the current system is these broker-dealers and and others are kind of making the market and there's a lot of bespoke trading and bilateral trading. Let's just put it all on a central a platform, clearinghouse, uh, to That's right. make the trades. Okay, so that seems also like a slam dunk thing to do. Why haven't we done that? Who's against that idea? Why maybe the broker dealers themselves don't want that to happen? I mean, why why wouldn't we do that? Uh, I mean, 
cost and benefit analysis for this particular proposal, broader yeah. central clearing, uh, hasn't been uh, easy. One reason is uh, mm. in the bilateral part of the treasury market that we just discussed. Uh, uh, I mean, essentially, I mean, most of the time there is uh, no margin requirement. So mm. if you and I uh, trade mm. a treasury security or uh, a repo transaction, mm. get into a repo transaction, we are not required to post a marginal collateral, exchange marginal collateral. And but in uh, in the uh, CCP board, in the board of central counterparties, uh, I mean having solid collateral requirement, uh, I mean is necessary because essentially at the end of the day, uh, the CCP uh, would pool and concentrate almost all the counterparty credit risk uh, in the financial system and counterparty credit risk. In our case, treasury securities would mostly materialize in the form of settlement failures. But so th there is a cost factor. And I mean, if you put yourself in the position of buy side or sell side firms, uh, I mean, in the current regime, they are uh, uh, trading relatively in an opaque way, uh, relatively uh, with minimum margin. So uh, in a alternative market configuration where most of the trades would be cleared through CCPs, uh, margin margin requirements, collateral requirements would most likely be in place. So that okay. would increase the cost. Yeah. It seems like to me that feels like we should be doing that. And I can understand why the current players might have some, I like the way this works now because it's opaque and so forth and so on. But from a you know, uh, uh, from a regulatory perspective, from a financial system stability perspective, it feels like a central clearing uh, mechanism make, makes a whole lot of sense. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Fair yeah. enough. Hopefully that. I think we some we need the, to make sure that CCPs are risk managed well as well. Yeah. And they're going to be SIFI. Wouldn't they be systemically important too? I mean, wouldn't they be? They are. Probably. So, they, yeah. they be yeah, they and are. therefore, yeah. you know, higher regulatory scrutiny, maybe some additional exactly. capital. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Chris. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think some of the criticism of what I've uh, heard or read is just uh, some debate about the timing of the transition. How, I mean, these are is a pretty large market, right? So, how oh, quickly do you transition it I see. over time? Sure. If you try to compress it, that could be highly disruptive. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think because of that, uh, the, I mean, uh, the final SEC rule, uh, you know, has designed a, I mean, careful staged path. Uh, uh, transition. So almost two and a half years from now, uh, till the implementation of the broader central clearing mandate would go through. So there is time. Okay. So uh, adjust the leverage ratio requirement, uh, ex exclude treasuries, establish a central clearing um, platform mechanism for trading. What's third on the list? So actually, this this is uh, this should have been the first on the list. Oh, first on the is, list. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this should have okay. been the first on the list. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, standing repo facility, yeah, okay. with very broad right. access uh, uh, to not just a, a few primary dealers that are uh, trading counterparties of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, but also it would open up. Uh, it would be opened up to other market participants, for example, large asset management firms as well. So that was uh, the first recommendation of the 
group of 30. Uh, and uh, as you know, the Federal Reserve uh, uh, I mean, developed the standing repo facility in 2021, but uh, uh, it is essentially open to only uh, uh, primary dealers, which are, mm -hmm. I think, 22 or 21. And mm -hmm. these are, as I just said, the trading counterparties of the New York Fed. Mm -hmm. So uh, the concern, uh, I mean, rightly has been that if we open up this facility to hedge funds, large asset management firms, and etc., mm -hmm. that could create moral hazard because the standing repo facility is there, and that could uh, incentivize uh, the build up of more leverage in the financial system. Uh, but, for example, uh, under a broader central clearing mandate, and because of the margin requirements that we just discussed, uh, I mean, well-designed margin requirements could somehow, uh, in a way, uh, to some extent, control the buildup of leverage in the financial system. So, for example, if the Federal Reserve uh, becomes a counterparty uh, to the CCP, that would uh, clear the treasury securities market, uh, then uh, uh, buy side and uh, sell side firms would face the CCP and not directly uh, uh, the Fed and everything would uh, happen mm -hmm. in the presence of margin requirements. That could control to some extent ah. the leverage and uh, the subsequent, mitigate the subsequent moral hazard problem. Got it, got it. So if you run the you run access to this repo facility through the CCP, the central clearing platform, that would help to mitigate this concern about moral hazard that might might be created by giving access to this uh, repo facility. Exactly. If yeah. the CCP and if its structure, yeah. its collateral requirements are right. very very well designed, that yeah that could happen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, anything. It, we're, we're getting a little long in the tooth here, uh, and uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you've got a job to do. You've got to go save yeah, sure. the yeah. treasury market. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was listening. I was traveling yesterday in a car a little bit. I was listening to NPR, and they had this guy on talking about all the uh, trash in the uh, atmosphere, in the um, uh, around the Earth. You know, because we've sent up all these satellites and rockets and it's there's a lot of debris up there and his his main concern and worry is that you know that debris some of that debris hits a critical satellite and you know knocks out communication for the northeast corridor or something like that you know that's his concern <laughs> you feel like that kind of guy to me for the treasury market <laughs> it's just it's like you know there's all these problems out there so how and, and so the interviewer and NPR asked the guy, how worried are you? Do you, do you stay up at night thinking the satellite's going to get knocked out? And the guy goes, I am really very nervous that, that this is going to happen. So my question to you, how nervous are you that, you know, the treasury market's going to, uh, before we make these changes that we just discussed, that we're going to have an event or, or maybe it's, we have to have the event to generate the will to actually make these changes. I, I, I don't know. So how, how worried should we be about this? Some, some, is it a big deal or a small deal or, you know, what's the deal? Uh, I think, uh, Mark, I think it's a big deal, uh, because of the, uh, fiscal outlook, yep. mostly because of the fiscal outlook, 
But I think the, uh, the recommendations and proposed reforms that we just discussed, uh, I mean, they could be in place in two years. And I mean, on top of that, we know that the Federal Reserve may start cutting rates, uh, I mean, this year, next year, and in 2026. So uh, uh, that would essentially make Federal Reserve also a buyer of treasury securities, narrowly viewing when the treasury would issue more debt, whether there are uh, entities that can absorb that. So, I mean, yeah, I I think it's a big deal. Uh, It's a main concern, but hopefully in the next two, three years, we're not going to see events similar to what we observed in 2020. Got it. You're saying we got got all this debris flowing around you know, flying around. If we don't do something, something's going to happen, but we've got a little bit of a window here, you know, next couple, three years, because the interest rates are coming in, market conditions are going to ease. Therefore, it's less likely we're going to, a debris is going to hit a satellite. But nonetheless, if we don't make these reforms at some point down the road, we're we're going to take out a satellite. Uh, That's right. That's that's, (laughs) Because mostly because of the fiscal outlook. Yeah, the fiscal outlook. Got it. Okay, very good. Well, I, you know, I want to thank you for walking us through this because this is a very, again, difficult topic, but you did a great job. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Mark. I, thank I, you for I know you're really worried, but I feel less worried because you're really worried. I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but the fact that you're really worried, I'm less worried. So <laughs> keep at it. Thanks, and, Mark. Yeah. yeah, keep at it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, Chris Mercer. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Anything else? Just thank you. That was really yeah. enlightening. Yeah. Thank you. Very enlightening. Thank so, you, Chris, Marisa. Nice well, thank you. Too. Thank you, Samim. Yeah. And uh, thank you, dear listener. Uh, appreciate your listening in. And we'll talk to you next week. Take care now.